Good afternoon, congregation. We would like to extend a warm welcome to all who are worshiping with us today, including those online. We pray that we may be blessed as we worship the Lord together, and that during this time of fellowship, we will be nourished and refreshed by our loving God, and that He is glorified in this. Consistory has the following announcements. Lord willing, there will be a consistory meeting this week, Thursday, January the 12th, beginning at 7.30. The Young Peoples will be meeting this evening at the Four Horse Residence beginning at 7.30. The collections today will be gathered for the work of the deacons to distribute to those in need, both within and outside of our congregation. 
this afternoon again, we may welcome our own pastor, Jeremy Sechtero, who will be leading us in worship. Good afternoon, congregation. What a blessing it is to gather not only once, but even twice for the worship of our God. He welcomes us into this special time of worship as his people with the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. If you're able, please rise. Brothers and sisters, filled with the power of God, the power of the cross, from where does your help come? Receive his greeting. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Amen. We are people of the cross. We are the people who identify, as we heard this morning, with a suffering savior, a suffering savior who is also king, even the ruler of kings on earth. Let's sing of the Lord who is deserving of our praise and endless thankfulness for his mighty salvation. Psalm 92, the stanzas 1, 5, and 6.
Please bow with me in prayer. O Lord Most High, God of blessing, we approach your holy throne of grace in awe and in adoration, that you would choose a people like us, wicked and sinful, and choose to pour out your grace upon us, that you would choose to pour out your steadfast love and boundless mercy on wretches like us. Lord, we give you thanks for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we could experience together this morning, that we could be spiritually nourished at your table, that we could be encouraged by the gospel of our beloved Jesus Christ, an example to us, our great teacher. But so much more importantly, not only an example, but our Savior, who delivered us from your righteous wrath that should have come to us. We thank you that we have the opportunity this afternoon to further marvel over the wondrous cross, to examine the sufferings of our Savior, and to grow in thankfulness and wonder at your plan of salvation. Show yourself near to us this afternoon through the truths of your word as they are proclaimed. Fill not only our minds but our hearts, that we may worship you in a fuller and truer way day by day. All this we pray in his blessed name. Amen. In connection with our confessional reading from the Heidelberg Catechism, I invite you to open Holy Scripture with me to the book of Galatians. We'll be examining two passages there together. First of all, Galatians chapter 3. And when Paul wrote his letter to the Galatian church, He was writing to deal with Judaizers who had come in preaching a different gospel, preaching that believers had to become ethnically Jewish to belong to Christ. The cross was a stumbling block for many early Jewish Christians, but for Paul, it represented that Christ took the curse that was to lay on us. He took the curse and gave us the blessing instead. Let's read Galatians 3, the first 14 verses. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Did he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And then turn ahead with me now to Galatians chapter 6. 
For the cross not only represented the curse of God, but it was something that Paul also took great comfort in and even boasted in. Galatians 6, let's read the verses 11 through the end, 11 through 18. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they might not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. In response to our readings, let's sing now from Psalm 116 about how since Christ took the curse of death upon himself, we are saved from the true terror of death and hell. Psalm 116, the stanzas 1, 2, and 5.
We've come now in our confessional reading to Lord's Day 16, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 16. Please turn there with me, page 530 of your book of praise. Now, Lord's Day 15, uh, Lord's Day 16, rather, follows directly from Lord's Day 15 about the suffering and crucifixion of our Savior. This Reverend Vanderhorst preached on a few weeks ago. As we examine Lord's Day 16 together, you'll notice that the cross, not only the death of our Lord, but the method of death, is spoken of quite a bit in the sermon. So as a result, we will begin our confessional reading one question earlier at question 39. The manner of death, the method of death is quite important here. So starting at the, at the end of Lord's Day 15, going into Lord's Day 16. Does it have a special meaning that Christ was crucified and did not die in a different way? Yes. Thereby I am assured that he took upon himself the curse which lay on me, for a crucified one was cursed by God. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? His burial testified that he had really died. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from Christ's sacrifice and death on the cross? Through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. After the sermon, we will sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, the first two stanzas. May God bless the preaching of the truths of his word. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, what does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you? It's a symbol that is everywhere. Traditionally, up until not too long ago, crosses crowned the top of every hospital building. The cross, for many years, for thousands of years, was seen as a symbol of healing, as a symbol of care. Crosses were and often still are used as grave markers. The cross was used as a symbol of those who belong to Christ. It's a symbol of hope for the resurrection because the cross is empty. Jesus is no longer on the cross. And the empty cross was met with the empty tomb. Crosses, shiny gold or silver crosses have been worn around the necks of many, especially women, as a designation of being a Christian. But there are also those who do not like the cross, even religious people, even people who call themselves Christian. I received a message on our Facebook page not too long ago from a woman who was questioning our theology. 
She said, why, why would you post something like this? Why would you post something like that? How is this actually faithful to scripture? And I responded gently, pointing her to various texts. And finally, after a few messages back and forth, she said, well, it doesn't really matter what you say. I'm not going to listen to you because I see in your profile picture that you have an idolatrous symbol. Our profile picture is the name of our church and a cross. Now, when we see these two options, it seems fairly clear to us which one of these is right. Those who who see the cross as a symbol of care, hope, a symbol of belonging to Jesus Christ, over against those who see the cross as an idolatrous image, we know which of these is right. But let me put to you this afternoon the question, what if both options are missing the point? What if both options have it wrong? We know that we can never demonize the cross, viewing it as a symbol of idolatry, a symbol of false religion. Our very salvation depends on the cross. But we also have to be careful not to glamorize the cross. What does this mean, uh, glamorizing the cross? Because doesn't the Apostle Paul boast in the cross? We just read that a few minutes ago. Far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, absolutely, Paul boasts in the cross. We must as well boast in the cross all day long, your entire life long. But boasting in the cross is not the same as glamorizing it. This afternoon, let us learn to have a fuller and more faithful view of the cross so that we can truly sing about the wondrous cross, the wondrous, horrific, greatest good, lowest evil, perfectly just, demonically corrupt, blessed and cursed symbol of our faith. This afternoon, let us proclaim together, I love the old rugged cross. We will see that we should have this love despite what it is, because of what it gives, and because of what it takes away. I love the old rugged cross despite what it is. So let's attempt to clarify things here together right now at the beginning because things might be a little confusing by now, given that introduction. We're not to glamorize the cross, but we can glory in it. Those seem very close to each other. It's, it's a little confusing. We, we can't glamorize the cross, but we can and we should love it. Not to mention the list of polar opposite adjectives for the cross that we heard. It is somehow wondrous and horrific. It is somehow the greatest good and the lowest evil. It is somehow perfectly just and demonically corrupt. It is blessed and cursed. If we're paying attention, we're probably confused. So how does this all work? To answer that, we have to first step back with a bit of a more basic question. What is the cross? What exactly is this symbol of Christianity that adorns the top of churches, that hangs around the necks of the faithful, the symbol that the Emperor Constantine painted on his shield when he, when he converted to Christianity? Well, as you may or may not know, the cross is a symbol of unimaginable brutality. Now, being graphic for the sake of shock value, it, it has no place in a sermon But it is vitally important this afternoon that we briefly but starkly look at crucifixion. Death by crucifixion, it was a terrible way to die. 
probably the most painful, the most humiliating, the most torturous way to die in all of human history. Roman law actually forbade Roman citizens from being crucified because the agony and humiliation was too much for citizens of the greatest empire on earth. This was a punishment for the other, for those who didn't belong, for those who didn't fit in, especially those who appeared to challenge the rule of Caesar. This is why the trial turned against our Savior when he was, when he was accused of claiming to be a king. No king would be tolerated in the Roman Empire. No lord but Caesar. That's why it was written above our Savior's body as he hung on the cross, Jesus Christ, the King of the Jews. It was a message from Pontius Pilate. This is what happens to kings. No kings here. Only one emperor, only one lord, Caesar. Now there are those who compare crucifixion to the electric chair those who compare it to lethal injection. But both of these modern methods of execution are done relatively privately, in the back room of a prison with just a few onlookers. Both of these modern methods of execution are quick. Lethal injection especially is is painless. All of the death has been taken out of death. Just an injection, just a routine medical procedure. But crucifixion was not private, crucifixion was not quick, crucifixion was not painless. The wooden cross, rough wood, stained by the blood of previous victims, it was laid on the ground and the victim was stripped naked and forced to lie upon it. And then nails. Not even really nails, but five to seven inch metal spikes would be driven through the wrists. One spike in each wrist and a third spike through both feet. Now the man and the cross were inseparable. And then the entire contraption was sort of pulled upright and then dropped, none too gently, into a hole in the ground prepared for it. Imagine that jolt, the tearing of the flesh that would happen even then right at the beginning. And then for hours or even days, the victim would fight against suffocation. Because of the way that the victim's body hung on the cross, breathing was impossible. And so he would have to push up on the spike that was through his feet to get a breath. And he would slump back down to minimize that intense pain in his feet. It was a trade-off. Intense, unthinkable pain in your feet, burning in your lungs. Back and forth, up and down for hours or even for days exposed to the elements, exposed to the crowds, staring, mocking, blaspheming our Savior. This is a far cry from the shiny gold necklaces that we have around our necks. A far cry from the sanitized, glamorous crosses that we have on pamphlets that we have on our website. And now despite this, there's there's nothing wrong with having a cross as the symbol of our faith. There's nothing wrong with wearing it around our neck. I, too, have a cross necklace that I regularly wear. I, too, drink from mugs adorned with the cross. It's right. It's fitting. Paul boasts in the cross. We are to love the cross despite its cruelty and evil. The cross that we are to boast in is the real cross. We have to love the genuine cross. What was done to our Savior by the Jews, by the Romans, It was horrific, it was evil, it was corrupt, it was cursed. And yet, 
on Good Friday and every two months at the Lord's Supper when we celebrate what our form for the Lord's Supper so perfectly refers to as the blessed memory of the bitter death of our Lord. We celebrate not because we're sadists, celebrating the man, celebrating that the man that we love more than anything else went through unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, but rather we can celebrate, we can rejoice because of what was earned, what was gained because of the cross. That's our second point this afternoon. After that first point, it seems to be a rather difficult thing to love the cross. How can we love that horrific, evil, corrupt, and cursed cross? Well, it's because it is, at the same time as all of those things, it's also wondrous. It's also good. It's also just. It's also blessed. Let me explain. Now we are properly into Lord's Day 16. We needed to to sort of take a running start, as it were, to get into a description of the humbling unto death, the descent into hell. We needed to back up and speak about the crucifixion which technically belongs to Lord's Day 15. But properly in our Lord's Day now, question and answer 40. Why was it necessary for Christ to humble himself even unto death? Because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Let's pause for a moment on those final words. The death of the Son of God the death of the light of the world, the death of the dearest and best. He was slain for a world of lost sinners. The death of the Son of God. I remember when I first came to the realization that Jesus died for me, that it was my sins that caused his suffering. It was my sins that caused the death of the Son of God. As a child of About five years old, I sat there in the pew, overcome by various emotions. I was struck by grief. I was the one who did this to Jesus. I was struck by confusion, frustration, and even anger. God, why would you let this happen? Just let me burn in hell. I don't want to have caused this. Don't put my sins on Jesus. Let me take them with me into hell. Because it's not fair. I refuse to let Jesus pay for my sins. The cost is too high. The reward isn't worth it. I am not worth his pain. And so I do not want to love the cross. I don't want to cling to the cross. I don't want to survey the wondrous cross. I want to distance myself from it as far as I can. Because, with all due respect, God, you made a mistake here. Your beloved son is far better than me, your adopted son. This was the heart of five or six-year-old Jeremy breaking open and pouring out. At that moment, I wanted more than anything. Maybe one of the only people ever in history to want this, what I wanted more than anything, was hell for myself. I wanted to suffer in hell to save my Savior suffering so much on the cross. There's actually something useful, something valuable that we can learn from the mistaken and emotional five-year-old Jeremy. If it was about worth, if it was about value, then what I thought there 
so many years ago in the pew was right. Not a single one of us, not anyone here, not anyone in history, Mother Teresa, not the Apostle Paul, not Luther, not Calvin, not Bonhoeffer, is of more value than Jesus Christ. Not a single one of our eternal lives is worth the suffering of Christ on the cross. If it would be a trading of value, then this would be the worst trade in the history of forever. But that's not what it's about. It's not about value. Because what does the catechism say instead? Properly summarizing scripture, the catechism explains because of the justice and truth of God, satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. The cross does not mean that God the Father loves you more than he loves Jesus Christ. Because he doesn't. It's not that God the Father pushed Jesus out of the way so that you could then have the best seat in heaven. The message of the cross is not a message of our infinite value. When we survey the wondrous cross, when we cling to the rugged cross, we are not rejoicing in it because it shows how much we are worth. The cross does not say that we are worth The cross does not say that we are worth more than all the diamonds or the pearls and that when God looks at us, then he has to catch his breath because of our beauty. That's not what the cross says. Instead, the cross testifies to four things, not a single one of them being our value. The cross testifies, first of all, to the infinite value of the glory of God. God's glory, his name being spread abroad, his church being gathered from all corners of the globe, that all creation might join in the song of praise. This is worth the death of the Son of God. The glory of God is worth the death of the Son of God. And secondly, the cross testifies to the enormity of our sin. Because of how much we have sinned. Because of how offensive our sin is. Because we have racked up for ourselves infinite wrath by sinning against an infinitely holy God. It was then only through an infinitely perfect and holy sacrifice that we could be reconciled to him. And that justice could be done. Thirdly, we also see through the cross the immeasurable greatness of the grace of God. God didn't have to do this. His justice could be accomplished by sending each and every one of us to hell. We could pay for our sins forever away from his goodness and his light. God's justice would be accomplished. Even God's glory could, in a way, be accomplished. Because God is glorified through vessels of destruction as well as vessels of salvation. But instead, Nobody was forcing his hand. Instead, out of love, in infinite grace, he chose to save us. He chose to save wretches like you and me and to bring us into his family. And finally, through the cross, we can see the new creation that God is bringing into being. Through the cross, because of everything that flows out of the cross, because of the sanctification of his church that flows out of that justification accomplished, because of the glorification that is to come flowing out of this one act of redemption. It's beautiful. It's glorious. There will be a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth that is perfect. So no wonder 
we can glory in the cross when this is what it accomplishes. It is, as our catechism says, through Christ's death, this is answer 43, through Christ's death, our old nature is crucified, put to death, and buried with him, so that the evil desires of the flesh may no longer reign in us, but that we may offer ourselves to him as a sacrifice of thankfulness. And so the most loving thing, the most glorifying thing for five-year-old Jeremy, for 30-year-old Jeremy, for each and every one of us, is not to reject the cross. It's not to have our sense of justice and fairness and wisdom valued above God's perfect wisdom. But rather, it is to accept, no matter how difficult it can be at times, to accept that Jesus' cross, his suffering, his death, was the best thing to happen in the history of redemption. We must glory in the cross. We must boast in the cross, as the Apostle Paul says in our reading. He says, far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings up another question. What about all the benefits of the cross? Can we not boast in them as well? Because of the cross, we have access to God. We're reconciled. That dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. That's Ephesians 2. And because of the cross, we are adopted as dearly loved children of God. That's Romans 8. Because of the cross, we have been set free. Galatians 5. So can we not boast in these things too? Can we not boast in the holiness of our God? Can we not boast in the love of our God? The sheer extravagance of grace of our God? Well, let's not, let's not misunderstand the Apostle Paul here. We can, and we should, and we must boast in all of these things too. The Apostle Paul has his own list of boasting that he does. He says, we exult in the hope of the glory of God, Romans 5 verse 2. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, Romans 5 verse 3. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weaknesses, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. And then, who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you? 1 Thessalonians 2, 19. So how does this all work? Paul says, I will only boast in the cross, and then he proceeds to boast about various other things. Well, all of Paul's boasting, all of our boasting, it comes because of the cross. And so when we boast in God's holiness, when we boast in his grace, when we boast about our weaknesses, when, when we boast as Paul did in the, in the beauty of the church, we have to recognize that all these things are only possible because of the cross. It is the cross that has gained all of these things. It is the cross that has displayed all of these things. That wondrous and horrible cross. The cross where the sinless one suffered and died to fulfill God's justice. Because of the cross, we have received this amazing portrait of God, so much greater than any artist could ever paint. It was made so clear to us in the cross. All of his perfections so marvelously displayed. Mercy and justice. Look at the cross for their ultimate fulfillment. Love and grace, holiness and might. All of this perfectly displayed in the cross. Because of the cross, we have received every blessing. Each and every blessing comes to us because of the cross. 
because of the curse that our Lord suffered. This is so wonderfully shown in our form for the Lord's Supper. I know we read it this morning, but indulge me briefly in this list of six ultimate contrasts. I try to bring this out when I read the form, but I'm going to bring this out even stronger now. These contrasts, maybe you've noticed it. He was bound that he might free us from our sins, bound and free. He suffered countless insults that we might never be put to shame. Though innocent, he was condemned to death that we might be acquitted at the judgment seat of God. He even let his blessed body be nailed to the cross that he might cancel the bond which stood against us because of our sins. By all of this, he has taken our curse upon himself that he might fill us with his blessing. On the cross, he humbled himself in body and soul to the very deepest shame and anguish of hell that we might be accepted by God and never more be forsaken by him. You see all of these beautiful contrasts. And in the heavenly heavenly throne room, the heavenly courtroom, if there were only justice and if there were no grace, if five-year-old Jeremy had his way and our Savior had not suffered and died on the cross, then all of us would stand condemned. When asked for a verdict, the accuser, Satan, would accuse us and call out death. The holy angels would call out death. God himself, the judge, would call out death. These words would ring in heaven and they would be absolutely right. Death, death, death. That's if the cross didn't happen. But it did. The cross did happen. Justice and grace, mercy and love were poured out. And so when we stand by the cross, marveling at it, marveling at the man pictured on the cross, clinging to that cross with all our might, with all the might that God has given us to cling, our verdict is changed. A different word rings out in heaven. Our death has been taken away. It's our final point. Sin leads to death. We know this all all throughout the Bible. From the very beginning, when God warned Adam and Eve, still at this time in their sinless state, he said, if You sin if you eat of the fruit. Death is the result. The day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Paul writes in his glorious theological masterpiece, his sermon to the Romans, the wages of sin is death. What we earn for ourselves when we sin, when we obey Satan, when we become co-workers with him of evil, he'll pay our wages and those wages are death. And then at the very end of scripture, evildoers are thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So all throughout scripture, you have sin and you have death that follows right behind. Sin leads to death. We could say that sin is cursed. Sin is something that God has cursed with the consequence of death. And it was in the cross, the glorious, wonderful cross, that our Savior received the curse for us. As our reading says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ died the death that we deserved. For we were cursed. 
From the moment Eve and then Adam ate the fruit, to the moment we were conceived in our mother's womb, to the moment when we began to display our sinful nature and sin against those around us, a curse lay upon us. The curse of death. But what exactly does death look like, you might ask? Because it was promised to Adam and Eve that the day they ate of this fruit, they would die. But Adam died when he was 930 years old. This means, if you do the math like I did this week, Adam lived to see the birth of Lamech, his great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. Six greats. That doesn't sound like he died the day he ate the fruit. So what does this mean? What exactly does this curse of death look like? It can't just be physical death. And you're absolutely right. The death that God warned our first father and first mother of was a threefold kind of death. There was physical death. Death came to Adam when he was 930 years old. Without the fruit, nothing would have happened when he turned 930. There was spiritual death. This death came to Adam and Eve immediately when they ate the fruit. And then there was eternal death. This is the second death. The true bitterness, the true sting of death. This is death that, from what we read in Scripture, it seems Adam and Eve were saved from. They did not have to suffer. And each one of these three kinds of deaths, they were addressed at the cross. It didn't remain the same, but our Lord, he had a powerful effect on all three of these kinds of deaths. And our catechism addresses the physical death question in question and answer 42. Since Christ has died for us, why do we still have to die? Our death is not a payment for our sins, but it puts an end to sin and is an entrance into eternal life. So while physical death does still happen, every single human being who has been born will one day die. Each and every one of us here has a tombstone waiting for us, unless Christ returns first. This is a consequence of the fall into sin. Adam lived for 930 years instead of eternally. But that physical death that comes is something that now has been transformed. It has been transformed from a destination into a doorway. For the Christian, death is merely the doorway into heaven's glory. Because of Christ's resurrection, we can confidently and joyfully say with the Apostle Paul, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? It is, as the preacher Billy Graham once so powerfully said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive then than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. This is what the cross has done for us in terms of our physical death. Death, Satan's greatest weapon, has been co-opted in service of God. Truly, our God is more than a conqueror. This is our physical death, but what about the second aspect? What about our spiritual death? Well, this aspect is not directly addressed here in the catechism, but our spiritual death, it's that idea of our separation from God. Our separation from God during this lifetime. It's what happened to Adam and Eve that very day. So that death happened immediately. They were removed from the garden. They were removed from the presence of the Lord God. No longer could they walk and talk with him face to face. 
But now God dwelt in unapproachable light. Those who could once approach him, now stained with sin, could not. Fellowship with God was damaged and was broken. And still today we feel the effects of this spiritual death. We still feel its effects. But because of the cross, we are in some senses closer to God than Adam and Eve ever were. Instead of walking and talking with God in the cool of the day, God dwells in our hearts. Have you given that much thought? At the beginning, in the Garden of Eden, God didn't live there. God didn't live with Adam and Eve in the Garden. He still dwelled in heaven. But he would visit. He would visit Adam and Eve. But now he dwells with us. He dwells in our hearts, not not just once a day, but every second of every day. Well, we don't hear him speaking in our ears, we can feel his spirit bearing witness with our spirit. We can feel his promptings. We know his will for our life. Our spiritual death has been softened, and our spiritual death is not forever. Because there will be a day when we see him face to face once again. And then finally, our eternal death. That's the idea, not just cast out of fellowship with God for 80 or 90 years in this life, but forever. What has Christ done for our eternal death? Well, he has died that death for us. Question and answer 44. Why is there added, he descended into hell? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. I don't know about you, but this is one of the most comforting answers in the catechism for me. Let's go through it line by line just briefly as we close this afternoon. In my greatest sorrows and temptations, this is when we can and we should turn to the cross. When we are struggling, when we are downtrodden, when we are anxious when we feel hopeless, when, when we're fighting against the powers of Satan and his minions, or we've given in to temptation again, and we think, how could God ever love me? All that's waiting for me is fire and brimstone. All that's waiting for me is the eternal wrath of God. In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted. We're assured and comforted because there is hope. You may feel hopeless, But remember what I say so regularly. Preach to your own soul. Preach to your own soul the truth, which is sometimes different than or even opposite of what you feel. I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, he isn't just the Lord Jesus Christ, he is my Lord Jesus Christ. He is mine. I am his and he is mine. We belong to each other for eternity. My Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. That wondrous and horrific, good and evil, just and corrupt, blessed and cursed cross of Christ, it is what gives us a hope and a future. Because the reality is that each of us Each and every one of us deserves a life of suffering. Each and every one of us deserves a death of suffering, followed by an eternal death of suffering. 
Those are the wages of sin, and we all sin. But the cross has transformed all of that. I think writer Jared Wilson put it best. The young people in Cloverdale might find this name familiar. Jared Wilson, he, he wrote the book that they're currently studying. And this is what he said about the atonement. It's what he said about the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross. He said these words, The blood of the Lamb is too precious to not be applied to our own doorposts. You see, the devil loves a bloodless cross. The devil doesn't mind a shiny trinket around your neck as long as there is not a shining treasure in your heart. Satan is afraid of the blood. He knows that it is the blood that washes sinners clean. He knows that it is the bloody cross that spells his doom. And he knows the blood of Christ pays the wrath-owed sinners, thereby forever making accusations against God's people, forever making his accusations against God's people null and void. Which is why Satan would love for you to keep your gospel nice and respectable. Satan would love for you to keep the cross sitting there on the top of the steeple of the church. Keep it up there on that tower and not in your life. Satan would love for you to keep the cross as a nice, shiny, sanitized, glamorized symbol of gold around your neck as long as it's not in your heart. But it's when you begin to glory in the cross when you cherish that old rugged cross, when you lay down your worldly trinkets and your trophies, when you cling to the old rugged cross knowing that one day you will exchange it for a crown, it is then, with a death lying defeated behind you, that you can truly begin to live. Amen.
Let us now confess our Catholic and undoubted Christian faith, all of it depending solely on the cross, with the words of him too. have an opportunity to give of your gifts of thankfulness, after which we will sing of our comfort in the God who saves us, our fortress and our rock. Psalm 91, the stanzas 1 and 5. May God bless your giving.
In our prayer this afternoon, we will lift up our brother Stan Lionhorst, giving thanks for the treatment he has been getting for the virus he contracted and pray for further healing. We'll give thanks that Reverend James Vischer has returned home from the hospital after a severe bout with pneumonia. And finally, we will also turn our attention to this country and its corruption. As noted, psychologist Dr. Jordan Peterson has been told that for questioning the political order and for speaking truth into gender confusion, he he needs to go in for re-education in what our government has decided is the correct truth. Let's bring this to God in prayer. God Most High, beautiful Savior, we come before you once more on this Lord's Day as your people, as your people who were once lost but are now found, as your people who were once hopeless but have now been filled with life and hope. In the place of the death we deserve, you have given us life, spiritual life, eternal life, and you have even transformed our physical death into a blessing. And all of this has come to us because of your cross. We pray that we will always live in the shadow of the cross, that we will cling to the cross and our lives may be cross-centered. Thank you that everything you do for us is truly grace. And Heavenly Father, as those who live out of your grace, we come before you with both thanksgivings and requests. Lord, we lift up our brother Stan Lionhorst. We thank you that though you have allowed him to experience so much difficulty in his life, you have also shown him so much love and grace and mercy. You have blessed our brother with a life much longer than many thought. You have blessed him with a brilliant mind and with a huge heart. And you have blessed us with his presence in this congregation. We thank you for both Stan and Lynn and for what they bring. I thank you also that you preserved Stan in his latest health concern, a serious virus that he contracted. We thank you that he was able to be diagnosed and has been receiving the necessary treatment that he can return to some degree of normalcy in his life, joining us in worship, spending time at home and at work. We pray that you will continue to heal our brother. We thank you also for the healing that our brother James Vischer has received after a struggle with a serious case of pneumonia. We thank you for the strength and faith of our brother, and we pray for both James and Willie as they both continue to recover whether at home or in the hospital. Be with your servants. Grant them everything that they need. Finally, O Lord, we lift up Dr. Jordan Peterson, noted psychologist and advocate for truth and morality. Lord, we watched in horror as in this supposedly free country, this brilliant and principled man was threatened by the College of Psychologists of Ontario that they would remove his license if he did not submit for a re-education program because he stood against radical gender theory and retweeted the head of the conservative party and opposed the removal of children from the homes of those who participated in the truckers' convoy. Lord, we thank you for this man and the strength and encouragement that he provides to all, but especially to young men as they are so lost in this world that has villainized them. I pray that you will bring about justice in this case, that you will bring about justice in this country. We pray that you will also work in Dr. Peterson's heart that he may have a true and living faith in you as it is not clear if his respect for the morality and worldview of Christianity has turned into worship of you as God or not. Lord God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for how you bless your people. Thank you for the cross. 
and for the man who is crucified upon it in our place. In his name do we pray. Amen. In closing, let us once more turn our attention to the wondrous cross of Christ. When I survey the wondrous cross, the final two stanzas. Receive now the blessing of your God and go in his peace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Thank you.